Maybe you have noticed it, but we're in the midst of an election season right now. And I think it's probably fair to see we've never to say we've never seen anything quite like this particular election. Uh, it has been a, um, a riotous, tumultuous conversation that I know has occupied many a water cooler and dinner table. Uh, and uh, in just a short while, in spite of all of the spectacle of it, uh, we are going to need to cast our votes. We're going to need to make a decision amongst the candidates presented to us about who we believe is most fit to lead these United States and the free world in the coming years. As we make that crucial decision, I think it may be helpful to remember the words of a famous American general. Uh, general Norman Schwarzkopf, who led the United States and the coalition forces in the first uh, Persian Gulf War in the liberation of a Kuwait, once said this about leadership. He said, leadership is a potent combination of two things, character and strategy. And then he goes on to say, but if you have to be without one, relinquish strategy. That's just how important character is in the making of a leader. Now, there's no doubt that every candidate in this particular race is a character. I think that's become really obvious to us. Um, the question that needs to occupy us more and more, I think, is do they have the specific traits of character that are most especially needed? Which of them seems to have the, the character that we need to move us forward as a people in this next season of our history? Who, for example, has the courage to be bold when that is needed? Leadership requires boldness. Uh, naming things, challenging, pushing, who's got that? And also the ability to be self-restrained, to be considerate and reflective about the needs of the particular moment, who has got that combination? What does the way that they have managed power in the past or um, handled the temptations that come to all of us? or uh, dealt with people in the dark when nobody was looking, what does that tell us about their, their fitness to lead us? Can they tell the truth? Um, do, do they understand the importance of the bedrock of truth in life? Uh, how have they handled it when they've failed? They've made mistakes, as we all do. Have they been able to repent of those? Have they been able to, to admit their failures and talk about the turns that they have made uh, in life? Uh, what comes out when these leaders are under pressure? What oozes out of them when they're squeezed by the pressure of public life or of personal tragedy? Uh, what, what exudes from their lives that tells us about what's really in their core? Alongside of our examination of their policy strategies, which I would also remind us is critical for us to be looking at closely, we ought to keep questions about character in mind as we assess these candidates, but not just these candidates. I would suggest to you that it's crucial we keep these kinds of questions in mind when we think about ourselves. Now, whether we tend to conceive of ourselves in these terms or not, every single one of us is a leader of one kind or another. Uh, every single one of us is in positions of influence 
And the way we live our lives is casting ripples across the coffee cup of some environment, in a sense. Uh, every single one of us is making choices and decisions. Uh, we're dealing with power and possessions. We're handling pain and pleasure. We're uh, working our way through privilege and relationships with people. And the way we handle these things, manage these moments, sends out the, these ripples across the circles of our family and our friendships and our workplaces and our church and our community and so many other places. The only question is, what kind of a leader are you? It's not if you're a leader, it's what kind of a leader are you? Are you a thoughtful, deep person of character or a person that's shallow and variable and just skimming across the surface of things? What sort of a leader are you? In the house where I, I grew up as a kid, there was a, a poster, uh, sat in one of the bedrooms, um, and it was a quotation from um, one of the individuals who has been a past president of these United States. It's, a, it's from the words of uh, John F. Kennedy, Jr. And uh, the statement that Kennedy made, and I would quick, be quick to say Kennedy was a person whose character was by no means perfect, but he did understand this about power and about leadership. He said, every one person, he says, can make a difference, and everyone should try. One person can make a difference, and everyone should try. So what do you suppose is the difference that God wants you to make? Think about the circles you occupy in your family, where you've got influence, in your circle of friends at school or in the community. Uh, in the workplace that you go to, in the, in the religious, the church community that you're a part of, in our wider United States, what's the difference that God might want you to make? And are you trying to make a difference? Are you using who he's made you to be to lean into the challenges and opportunities of our time in the way that is needed so much uh, in the world today? And, and what does God need to refine in you in order to enable you to be even more of a change maker? Is there something that he needs to alter in your character uh, to enable you to have greater positive impact? And, and what kinds of experiences or circumstances are you going through right now in your life that he might actually be trying to use to shape you, to make you an even more uh, positively influential leader? Well, no story in the Bible is more helpful in our thinking about these particular things, in fact, about the role of leadership in general than the one we're going to be exploring today and in the weeks ahead. Uh, I don't know of any narrative that we find in the scriptures that um, does a better job of unpacking some of the critical elements of leadership and the making of leaders than the story of God's work with a very ordinary young man named Joseph on the journey towards transforming him into a very extraordinary kind of leader. Uh, when we meet Joseph in, in the 37th chapter of the book of Genesis, he is just 17 years old. He is your classic average Joe. He's just a kid. In fact, he's living in a society where um, there's tremendous um, primacy given to firstborn males, and Joseph is not a firstborn male. He's not a secondborn male. He's not a thirdborn male. Joseph is an 11th born kid. 
He is so far down the totem pole that he almost doesn't even show up in the story of the Bible, wouldn't show up in the story of the ancient culture. He was sort of an, on the way down also ran list. And, and Joseph is, is a guy who had to have been uh, struggling in that particular position because in a might makes right sort of culture, which is what the ancient um, Middle Eastern world was, was like in many respects, um, Joseph would have been the last guy at the, the dinner table in a sense. You know, when the plates got passed around and all the older brothers were taking their stuff, I mean, imagine how much was left by the time it got down to the 11th place guy, right? Joseph had to have been the skinniest kid in his town. <laughs> I mean, really, uh, talk about an average Joe. Uh, but, but little Joe had one thing going for him. Uh, he had one thing going for him that was really significant. The Bible says, and I quote, now Israel, actually that's the name that God gives to, to um, his father Jacob, to Joe's father Jacob. Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. He was a December baby. And he made an ornate robe for him as a sign of this affection. Now, this robe that tradition is named the coat of many colors, raise your hand if you've ever heard that expression before, the coat of many colors, or which um, Broadway has dubbed the what? The technicolor dream coat. That's exactly it. Now, this coat is a very powerful symbol. Um, by giving him this robe, jo Joe's dad is saying, in effect, you may not look like much the way you are right now, but I'm telling you, I, I see you robed in splendor. I, I see the possibilities in you. I see what God can yet enable you to become. That's the, the symbol given this, this spectacular coat given to this very gray life that, that little skinny Joe had. Now, over the years, I, I've talked with a whole lot of people who've come to a place of significant influence in the world. I've talked to matriarchs who went on to lead you know, in amazing families. I've seen, uh, I've talked with folks who have led uh, remarkable nonprofit organizations that have had an influence on, on tens of thousands of people. I work as the moderator most months of the Executives Breakfast Club of Oak Brook, and it's a gathering of business and professional leaders, and my job alongside of my uh, coworker, Mary Kay, is to interview the CEOs of uh, name brand corporations that, you, that you're familiar with, McDonald's and Walgreens and Kickstarter and Redbox and all the like. And, and what we do in these gatherings is we try and get under the hood of their life. We try and understand what it is that makes them tick. We want to know their values. We want to know how they were shaped. How did they become the person that they are? And without, <laughs> without variation, the stories they tell or that I hear from those matriarchs and those nonprofit leaders is that every single one of them had a Jacob in their life. Every single one of them had somebody who saw something in them, who saw amidst the ordinariness of their life something extraordinary worth naming, worth celebrating, worth encouraging on in some way. I hope you've got people like that in your life. I'll say more about that in just a moment. But I do want to ask, are you robing anybody around you with that kind of encouragement? Are you in the practice of naming for the kids in the household or for your siblings or for your best friends or for the people in your workplace? 
the exceptional qualities, the potential you see in them? Are you wrapping them in that kind of a, uh, of a coat, in a sense? Because it's one of the most ripple-making forms of leadership there is, encouragement. It just, I remember vividly, I was, uh, the first time I ever got up in a church to speak, I was a college student. They asked me to do a reading, uh, like we have students do readings here. And um, I, I was scared to death. I mean, the, the t my tongue stuck to the roof of my mouth, and I had to give this little devotion after I gave the reading. And I just, I was terrible. In fact, it was awkward. I could see it was awkward for the other people. <laughs> you know, how badly I was doing. Like, maybe sometimes it is in this room. And, uh, but I go downstairs to the fellowship afterwards, and I'm, I'm, we're having, you know, juice and coffee and stuff. And uh, people are trying to be kind to me. And one guy comes up to me. He's, um, he's a carpenter or a plumber by trade. Uh, and he says to me, you know, Dan, that didn't go so well. I went, yeah, I didn't. I was scared to death. I could barely stand there. And he said, you know what? But I think you're going to get better. I think you should do more of this. I think you've got what it takes to, 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 to speak and to lead in that kind of environment, so don't give up. You know, that guy has no idea the difference he's made in my life. And I've, slightly, I've gotten slightly better over the years because of the encouragement. Have you got somebody like that in your life? who sends the ripples across your life that encouragement brings. And do you understand that your heavenly Father looks at you that way? When God looks at you, he doesn't see just an ordinary person. He sees someone he has robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees the, the, the extraordinary potential of who you can become as you live into the identity, the name he's given you as a son or a daughter of the living God. And um, that kind of encouragement is what comes to Joseph. And amazingly, this skinny kid, the skinny, hungry kid, is going to go on one day to become the, the, one of the top leaders of the greatest superpower of his age, as we'll find out in coming days. He's going to go on, ironically, think about that dinner table at home. He's going to go on to be the guy who feeds millions of people and keeps them from starving to death in a time of great uh, regional famine. And it begins with this encouragement that he's given. So I want you to take this in. God can make a technicolor leader from any background. Any background. Um, he can take somebody that is um, from a, a wealthy, affluent, well-educated background like um, a King Solomon was or like um, the businesswoman Lydia is in the, who leads the church in Philippi. Uh, he can take somebody from a rural, backwards, dysfunctional family like Joseph's or like David's, and he can turn them into remarkable leaders. They can be way down the totem pole at the beginning, and he can lift them up and use them in extraordinary ways. The key is they need somebody who believes in them the way God believes in you and helps to catalyze the potential that's there. So ride that ripple in your life, will you? Remember that this is, this is the word of God speaking to you when he says, you are my beloved. And, and, and ride that ripple and live towards your potential and become the leader he wants you to be and find somebody, find many somebodies in your environment and start that ripple for them. 
uh, speak to them and encourage them. You know, there's, there's, there is this danger I need to acknowledge as I encourage this particular movement in our lives that, that, that when we have been riding the ripple or when we have begun to feel the, the potential or the capacity that we have, we can sometimes come to think we have actually robed ourselves entirely. Uh, that we are self-made people, that we don't really need other people. There's this, this terrible danger that pride begins to take us over and affect the way we look at life. Instead of seeing that it's grace that's been clothing us, it's grace that's been carrying us all along the way. You can actually come to believe that because you are so great, others ought to show an unusual kind of deference for you. Think about the risk that's faced by people in public life. I mean, let, let's just think about the current election. Think about the risk that's faced by somebody who has already been um, first lady, secretary of state, uh, U.S. senator from one of the most influential states in the world. Uh, think about the character risk that, that that person undergoes. Think about somebody who, alternatively, on the other side of the aisle, who's born into tremendous affluence, uh, is given unusual opportunities and access to uh, privileges and to pathways, who, who's able to survive the, uh, a lot of the downturns that are the end of the business career of a whole lot of people. Think about the danger to that person's character. Think how either one of these kinds of people, or throw in Bernie if you like, how given all they've experienced, they could so easily come to think it really is about them. It's all about me. It's about all that I've done. It's about all that I'm capable of doing if you will just bow down before me. Every leader faces along the journey this, this risk when they must decide, am I in this position in order to be a servant or am I in this position in order to have others serving me? Uh, why has God put me there? Has God put me here? And if you read through Genesis chapter 37, you, you'll see that when Joseph got to that moment, wrapped in that glorious robe, adored by his dad, Joseph fails the test of character. I mean, there's just no way of sugarcoating the reality about Joe here. Um, God reveals to him in a dream that one day he's going to rise from his 11th place position and he's going to be in a position to exert amazing influence over huge numbers of other people. It's a wild, it's an exciting, a compelling vision. And Joseph could so easily have just smiled in humble gratitude and say, Lord, I'm not worthy, but thank you for your grace. I will try and do, do a good job with that. But Joe is too immature to respond that way. And so the insecurity he probably experienced as that 11th born kid uh, now gets, you know, that big hole in him just gets inflated by pride and he gets hugely puffed up into this awful kind of arrogance. And, and we get a picture in the story of that he's, he's accustomed to sort of ratting out his brothers. You've got, you know, have you got somebody like that in your family? And, they, you know, they, they're just sort of telling on everybody else. The Bible says he tells on his brothers. Not like as if he's perfect, right? But he knows he's got this golden kid status with dad, so he just 
He does this. And then he goes on and he describes the dream. He says to his brothers, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves, your sheaves sort of gathered around mine and bowed down to it. You just see the look in his eyes as he's telling this story. Does he have to tell them this story? I mean, really. He's like that kid at school who just has to tell you the ACT or the SAT score they got. You know, this has to slip it into conversation someplace. <sighs> a grandmother I read about recently shares an experience that she had in her family system that, that sort of goes along with this scenario in the Bible. And she says, my, my granddaughter received a watch, a timepiece, and a bottle of perfume for her birthday. The girl's name was Melissa. Melissa was so excited that she pestered everyone all day long to look at her watch and smell her cologne. At dinner, her mother said, Honey, I know you're proud of your gifts. Uh, we get that. But please, don't mention them while we eat. I mean, chill about this. And, and all through dinner, Melissa sits silently. And, and although she sniffs audibly at times, <laughs> and she often raises her wrist to her ear to listen to her watch, She's relatively quiet, but as the meal comes to an end, she can contain herself no longer, and she blurts out, I'm not supposed to mention it, but if anyone hears anything or smells anything, it's me. <laughs> Have you ever been a Melissa? Is there any Melissa in you? You're just dying for people to know how good you are. Right? You're just just hoping they'll notice. And if they, even if they compliment you, you just kind of feel like they haven't quite said enough. <laughs> there was more to be added <laughs> about how exceptional I was. You've been graced. You have been graced. And all of us have been graced in various ways. But it mixes sometimes with our pride and our insecurity. It goes to our head. And instead of using our influence humbly, it becomes too much about us. The conversation becomes, even if it's an internal conversation that nobody else hears, it becomes all about our rights, uh, all about the rewards that should be coming our way, about our needs, our hurts over those people who have the audacity to criticize us. It becomes about our plans, our position, our destiny, and that is what happened to Joseph. That's what happens to a lot of leaders. Pay attention, to the, again, to what you see in the political sphere today. It's what happens to Joe here. He knows he's the apple of his dad's eye. He gloats about it. He talks repeatedly about how his brothers, and in one of his visions, how even the sun and the moon and the stars are going to all bow down to him. And you know what? The world will bow down to him one day. He'll be a very different kind of man by then. But right now, all he can do is feel the pride of this. Listen to the result of this. Listen to the result of this character flaw in Joe's life. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said, that he had to say it. And, and so on a certain occasion, when Joseph is going out into the field to meet his brothers where they're tending the family flocks, they saw him in the distance, the Bible says, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. 
Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns, a well. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Now, this is not like the story of Cinderella. Do not perfume this. This is not the case of a pretty great kid who happens to have some very je jealous, mean siblings. I mean, think about this. It takes a lot of bad behavior to get all 10 of your siblings against you, right? They're older siblings. They're more mature. It, it, this guy, have, he, this average Joe was an above ar average jerk. He had to have been to produce this kind of response. And, and it would have ended badly, this story, if, if um, one of the brothers, Reuben, uh, did not intervene and say, let's not kill him. Let's not kill him. Let's just beat the snot out of Joe and throw him down in that pit there. Let's just leave it at that. Let's leave it at that. Maybe he'll starve to death. Maybe he'll get out. Let's not actually kill him. And then, as it happens, this Arab slave train suddenly comes up over the horizon, and, and, and one of the other brothers, Judah, has this brilliant idea. Wow, we don't have to kill him. We can sell him and make some money off of this deal. And so the Bible says, when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. And then the brothers slaughtered a goat and they took the special robe and they drenched it in the goat's blood and then they went back on home and they convinced dad that little Joe had tragically been devoured by wild animals without a trace left. And we were just broken up about it, dad. We're just so broken up about it. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And here ends the reading. Now here is a truth about leadership that I want to invite you to take in, as unpleasant as it is. Sometimes before God can make a leader, there are things he needs to break. In the making of a leader, there's often a period of breaking. And that's a critical leadership lesson for all of us to take in. Joe's pride needed breaking. As I know, it has needed breaking in me uh, many, many, many times. Uh, the question I would pose to you is, what needs breaking in you? What is it that is blocking you from becoming an even greater person of influence than you are? With all of your gifts, I mean, you've got lots of them. But what is, what's stopping you from further positive influence? And here's an encouragement to you. Ask somebody about that. Have the guts this week to ask somebody that you know loves you, somebody that, that cares for you and wants to see you thriving. Uh, ask them, what if it changed in me, what if it got broken in me, would make me an even more influential person for the good? Uh, what would send better ripples out from my life than are going out now? Let me just say that this is, this is going to be uh, politically and psychologically and sociologically incorrect. But let me just say this. Um, it is a blessing 
when our character flaws catch up with us. It is a blessing. That is what family's for. It's to put us in a place where we're there long enough that our character flaws catch up with us. That's why it's good to stay in a job for a really long time if you can, or a certain kind of a community, because sooner or later, the flaws are gonna catch up with you. I, I remember early, earlier in my journey here, w w struggling desperately with leadership at times, and <coughs> I would think about, I'm just gonna leave. I'm gonna go to one of these other churches. They're gonna love me there. And my wife would say, Dan, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> She's right about that. It's a blessing when our character flaws catch up with us because they force us into a crucible where maybe God could change them. And, and, and so think about and you're that, that in your life. There are times when he may be taking you into a breakdown of your image, life as you know it, in order to bring about a breakthrough. God loves this. This is a pattern for God. I hate to warrant, tell you about this. He will bring us to breakdowns to lead to breakthroughs. My friend John Ortberg, a pastor out in California, tells of an impoverished young man who once dreamed of a much better life. He'd grown up in bad circumstances. He wanted his, his family to know something different. So he saved up everything he could from his jobs, and he borrowed a whole lot more, and he started a grocery business with a partner. And um, one of this particular person's early flaws in life was he was a bad judge of character. He, he was not so good at, at picking his associates, and this was a really bad decision he made in this business deal because the associate had a more than serious drinking problem, and it led to the complete failure of their business enterprise and bankruptcy and just, it was awful. It took this individual a decade to, to dig out of the pit, to climb up out of the pit that he'd thrown himself into through his bad acting, his, his failure of, of, of uh, perception. And, and finally, he got free of the shackles of debt after 10 years of working at it. One day, however, he was clear. He decided, maybe I shouldn't do business. I'm going to try law. And then he decided, I'm going to move from law, and I'm going to try politics. And in 1860, that man, Abraham Lincoln, was elected president of these not-quite-United States. Now, Lincoln was a huge fan of Shakespeare. Did you know that? He loved Shakespeare. And his favorite quotation from Shakespeare was from his play Hamlet. And, and this was the quotation. There is a divinity that shapes our ends, rough-hew them as we may. In other words, even though we shape them badly, there is a divinity at work in our lives seeking to accomplish perfection, seeking to accomplish something wonderful and at work in all of the circumstances of things. Now, Lincoln, as Ortberg goes on to say, came to believe this very deeply about his own life, but also about the nation that he led. His entire second inaugural address is a profound reflection on how God was at work in the struggles of our nation. As Americans, we sh should never be afraid that we're going through times of struggle. 
when we're working it out, when we're trying to rediscover our values and our direction and what, what our foundations are, we should see these as divine opportunities, as painful as they may be. For in ways more mysterious and profound than any human being can fathom, uh, God is at work. God is at work. What a loss, says Ortberg, it would have been, not just to Lincoln, but to an entire nation, if the doors of that little grocery store had not closed. And all we would have is Abe's Deli <laughs> as the legacy. There is a divine hand at work, accomplishing his ends, rough-hew them as we may, and you can dare to believe that. And I encourage you to trust in that and to live toward that every day of your life. Let me just close this out today by summarizing some of what I've tried to share and then let you go on your way. One person can make a difference. Everybody should try. Stop waiting for some other leader to rise up, to fix our problems. One can make a difference. Let that person be you in your circle of influence. Secondly, leadership is a potent combination of character and strategy. And if you have to emphasize one, which one? Character. character. You got it. That's exactly right. And then thirdly, God can make a leader from any background, from any kind of dysfunction, even from the environment you come from or I come from. But they do need somebody who believes in them. The way God believes in you and in his power that can be at work in you. And people around you need a love that is going to push them to confront the flaws in their character just like you need somebody to love you that way. And as we're going to see in the life of Joe in weeks ahead and as we're going to discover in our own life, I hope and pray, you just never know what God will use in the making of a leader. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.